Good morning, church. Uh, I, I hope I am not. Um, the worship team came up this morning, and they led us in worship, and they led us powerfully. And I want, and I hope I am not betraying confidence, but they so poured their hearts out that as they left the platform, the affections, the emotions were still spilling forth, and they continued to worship here in the wings, and they were encouraging one another. And um, that blessed me more than you can imagine. Let's pray so we can so we can dive into this. God, we bless you for this time. I ask that you would move me out of your way. Put yourself on full display so that your people may get a glimpse of you. Remind them, God, that the mission is unchanged. They are to make much of you in a fallen world that desperately needs the grace that can be provided by no one except you. So gird them up. Give them perspective. Give them understanding. Give them the details. Let them do exactly how you would have this body make your name famous in this city. Be their brazen encourager, God. When they don't know what to do, remind them that it is enough that they know you. We bless you for all that you are about to do in and through this church. And give us hearts that understand the need for us to be mindful of you and never take you for granted and put you at the center of our joy. In the blessed name of your son, Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. Um, I have a passage that we're going to get to shortly, I promise. We're going to get there. I'm a fan of the book, so we're going to get there, okay? In fact, let's do this now. Uh, do me this favor. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And we are going to start reading at verse 50. And once you have it, if you are able, please stand to your feet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to start at verse 50. Paul is your author. He's writing to the church at Corinth. He writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must, be, must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortal. 
when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, restoration. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and honoring. You may be seated. Now, obviously, verse 58 is where we are headed. Yes, Oh, okay. Yeah, it's these big, these big gorilla hands. Okay. The, okay, hear me out, okay? We're going to get to verse 58, I promise, but there's a few things I need to do before we get into this, okay? I would be remiss if I did not take a moment to re recognize and celebrate uh, the man who was the angel, the visionary, the messenger of this house for more than two decades. Now, I need you to hear me say this because I'm going somewhere. Dr. Felix Gilbert is my friend. I said that not too long ago and a friend of mine overheard it in a, in a conversation I was having with someone else. And he said, I noticed that you always refer to your relationship with Dr. Gilbert in the present tense. It is because I genuinely believe in the resurrection. Just as Abraham could point out that God is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am able to say to you that Dr. Felix Gilbert is present tense. My friend, nearly every leadership door that has been opened in the city of Denver for me was swung open by Dr. Gilbert. This is not, this is not a resume. This is, I'm, I want to be very careful to point this out as a means of recognizing and celebrating what was done here. I am on the board of Denver Seminary. They would not know who I am had it not been for Dr. Felix Gilbert. I have the privilege of being an adjunct professor at that same school. Many of you were my students in the Urban Initiative. That occurred only because Dr. Gilbert came and said, I need you to come and do this. On Tuesday, we had a time of recognition and celebration, Black History Celebration at Denver Seminary. And, uh, and some of you were there. JP led worship. And there was a moment when he was giving testimony. He said that he was, he, he, when he moved here, he was, in, he was at the drums. And Dr. Gilbert said, come on out of there. 
and put him in a position of, of worship leading. And I said, I, when he said that, I said, I have been that person because I have on more than one occasion told him, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And he has this uncanny ability. I don't know if it's unique to personality. I don't know if this is a Caribbean thing. I don't know if he got this in the military, but he has completely erased the word no from his working vocabulary. So when he says to me, would you like to do this? And I would say, no. He says, I apologize for even doing that to you. You will be doing this. And I am a graduate from seminary because when I said no, Dr. Gilbert came to get me. Because of that, he is a very dear, a very dear friend. And I have been paying, a close, paying close attention for a decade, for a decade, to Restoration Christian Fellowship. On more than one occasion, he and I would sit and I would tell him what is occurring here and how we are reproducing, contextualizing that same thing at embassy. He says, how do you know what's going on at Restoration? I said, because I'm, I'm, I'm looking over the fence. I'm watching you. I see you. I'm still watching you. And I believe in what you're doing here. And because of that, I, on behalf of the body elders and trustees of Embassy Christian Bible Church want to give you our, our humble investment toward what you are doing here. I'll get to the text. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. If I were to give you a big idea for the passage for today, for the sermon today, I would tell you that it's okay to run with a limp. It's okay to run with a limp. In 1992, at the Barcelona, Spain Olympics, a young man named Derek Redmond, who was a representative of the United Kingdom, he was in fact the national record holder in the 400 meter sprint. He was favored to win a medal at the 1992 Barcelona, Spain Olympics. He took the track, and it was his time after four years of work to claim the prize toward which he'd been working for years. But something went wrong. The camera didn't wasn't on him when this occurred. But in the final turn, he noticed a sharp pain from the back of his leg. And the only reason we know what occurred to him is because you hear the commentators say, Redmond's out of the race. Because it was the last turn, the race was over only seconds later. And as a mass of runners 
crossed the finish line, many of them raising their hands in victory, some of them rejoicing just because they were impressed with the time that they, that they accomplished, and many of them celebrating the fact that they had the privilege of performing to, to execute their craft at the Olympics. While that was all occurring, Derek Redmond was lying on the track. And the camera took, turned away from those celebrating at the finish line, and he turned to the young man who was there in the center of the track, middle lane, because his time was so good. Right there in the middle lane, he was there, and you could see the agony, the literal pain on his face. I do not believe that he was in agony because of the searing pain that came from the torn hamstring that, that stumbled him from the back of his leg. I do not believe that. I think he was wrestling with the reality that everything he'd worked toward for four years came crumbling down in a moment. And he laid there for a few seconds. And then he got up and did something that many of you may remember. I'm old enough to remember this. I see a bunch of youngsters in the room. 1992 was before you were born. This was, it was a real year. <laughs> and he got up and he started on one good leg, limping to the finish line. Olympic officials came to the track to tell him, the race is over. You cannot qualify for the next round. There is no need for you to limp to the finish line. And I love the image of it because he had this very persistent, a, a, a perseverance, a diligence. And he even used some of his energy while he was trying to get there to shoo them away. And then out of nowhere, a middle-aged man comes from behind who bore a striking resemblance to Derek Redmond. And before he even touched the boy, he said something. We don't know what he said, but we do know this. The, the, the countenance changed immediately. And he took him by his arm and then wrapped his right arm over his shoulder, and he limped with him to the finish line. Officials came to try to plead with the middle-aged man to convince him to convince Derek Redmond to stop. And then he used his free hand to shoo, to shoo them away. In fact, if you pay close attention, he had a few choice words for them. <laughs> if you want to read lips, I want to be back, so I don't want to say what I think he said. But he had a few choice words for them, and I don't think his concern regarding them was that they were indifferent toward his son's hurting. It's that they were trying to stop his son from completing the task that was set before him. They were pointing out the limp. They may have even been well-intended but they were pointing out the limp to convince him it is not necessary for you to complete this race. You have our permission to stop. It's okay to limp to the finish line. There is honor in limping to the finish line. There is honor in keeping your eyes so focused on the prize. that the limp becomes a crown. Yeah. 
instead of a shame. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, some of you know me, so you know we have to earn the right to get to verse 58. There is context for this text. We'll shout in a minute. 1 Corinthians was a letter written to a church that was what I would like to call a mess. In fact, 1 Corinthians is actually not the first letter he had to write to Corinth. After planting the church, he found out about some silliness going on there, so he had a correspondence with them. And then after that correspondence occurred, someone contacted Paul and said, we have brand new silliness, so Paul had to write 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter they had to write to Corinth. In fact, there was an occasion after this when they started to challenge Paul's apostolic authority. And so he had to engage them around that. And they were dismissive of who he is as their leader. That was the third correspondence. We don't have that letter either. But in response to having to correct that, he wrote a fourth letter to them, which is in our Bible, 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is the second letter. 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter. It's because the church was a mess. In fact, nearly every time Paul had to write a letter, with the exceptions of Thessalonians, but every time he had to write a letter, it was to correct some silliness that was, current, that was occurring in a church that he planted. And his agenda every time was to bring them off the course they were on and put them back on the right course. So what happens in 1 Corinthians? A list of questions, a list of inquiries come to Paul where he's having to address these questions or correct some errors that he's been made aware of. And that's why in chapter 5, he had to tell them that it's not a good idea for you to sit idle, idle while a man is having an affair with his stepmother. He had to address that. In chapter 6, he had to let them know, you have been justified. You have been sanctified. So it's inappropriate for you to live a life that is inconsistent with the office of saint that you now hold. So your sexual purity, your identity should be in him instead of going into the temples and worshiping pagan gods sexually. It's why in chapter 7, he had to explain to them what marriage is. In chapter 8, he had to tell them how to practice carefully, practice the liberties that they have. Be sure you exercise these liberties in a way that does not cause your weaker brother, your younger brother to stumble. He in fact told them in chapter 9, I've done that with you because you are the younger one, you are the weaker one. So I have foregone a salary because many among you would stumble if I were to receive a salary. In chapter 10, he had to remind them of their identity, the weight that they carry in their walk with Christ. In chapter 11, he had to show them what the proper behavior is in the worship gathering. In chapter 12, you have to remind them that each of you, each of you, listen to me, each of you is a member of a body. And you are bringing, you have been blessed with spiritual gifts. And the gift is not given to you, it is given to the body. So if you are to be absent, you are denying the body a gift that God intended for the body to have by way of you. And then in chapter 13, the one we read at every wedding, the agenda there is for them to fixate on love so they can lovingly apply the spiritual gifts that God has given them. 
And in chapter 14, he has to address a specific gift that's an issue for everybody because everyone's haughty in the church there because they have the capacity. They value tongues more than the other gifts. And then in chapter 15, he has to confront the fact that there are teachers in the church who are denying the resurrection. And he appeals to them using the language of, an, of a farmer. He says, when you plant a seed, the seed has to be destroyed so that the greater can come. He said, you're so focused on the, the body that passed that you forget that it had to be destroyed so that greater could come. He says, he says you are denying a resurrection because you are in mourning. He says, mourn, but to understand this, mourn, being reminded that the lesser had to pass so that the greater could come. He says, our prototype was Christ. If you want to get a glimpse into the resurrection body, the body you will have, the glorified existence you can look forward to, look to the post-risen Christ. He is not merely the one who did this on his own. He was the example for us. He's the reference point. This is the Christ who they recognized when they saw him and had supernatural identity when they saw him. And he says he was the forerunner of what you can look forward to. Your eyes should be fixed on the circumstances ahead. You should not be looking down to your feet as you stumble over the circumstances that are present. You should be looking forward to what God has for us eternally and you're to work so that you can bring those realities to the present. There is a resurrection. And because of that, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Don't miss the last sentence. Knowing not hoping, not assuming, not guessing that your labor is not in vain. The Great Commission has not been removed from you. You have not been absolved from the responsibility to make disciples. Being kingdom ambassadors is a responsibility from which you have not been absolved. So you are to look to, you are to be Matthew 25 and look to the world and see the hungry and feed them. You see the thirsty and you quench thirst. You see those who are naked and you clothe them. You see those who are in prison and you visit them. You make provision for them and your labor will not be in vain. This is no small, this is no small thing. Now, this requires some trust. This requires some trust. Hold on a second. This will require some trust. This will require you look to God and say, God, um, the circumstances around me are distracting. So I have to trust you despite what I'm struggling with around me. Hear me out. The God whom we serve is trustworthy. Uh, a, a few years ago when my son was about, he was about four or five years old, he and I had a routine. He's too big for this now. He's, we, he and I had a routine. He would go in our home. He would, we have 14 steps that go from the first floor to the second floor. And as he got older, he would go up steps and he would jump to me. 
from steps. And as he got older and older, he started going higher and higher up. I started considering it a challenge. It was a thing that, that we would do. He, was, he, he started on step one, he would just jump to me. It was, barely a, it was barely a jump. It's more like a step into my arms kind of a thing. And then as he got a little bit older, he was doing from the second step and then the third and the fourth and the fifth. I want to say this out loud. We never did this, never, ever, ever did this while his mother was home. Yeah. Never. <laughs> Not ever. He and I knew better than that, okay? We never did that while she was there. Never, never. And then by the time he was four or five years old, he figured out he can go back to the sixth step. And he had to do a full-fledged jump. He had to be almost horizontal to the ground. He would have a Superman moment. And just as he's about to do that, my wife walks in the house. And she says, what are y'all doing? <laughs> Me, because I've been alive a little longer. Nothing. <laughs> he, a rookie. I'm trying to jump into daddy's arms from the sixth step. She had nothing, that was all she needed from him. I got all the information I need from you. She doesn't have anything else for him. She just turns to me and she says, what? I said, that was him, you that boy. You can't, you, you can't listen to, you can't listen to him. My son is wired to be confused when it's time to tell the truth. It's all he knows, it's how he's built. Don't ask him how food tastes, because he will tell you. He don't ask him if you had a good time, because he will answer you. Don't ask him about your outfit, because he will let you know about yourself, okay? He doesn't know, he's been taught not to lie, so he doesn't know when it's a bad idea to tell the truth. And so he will say to me, Daddy, she asked me, was I supposed to lie? And I can't, I'm like, oh, you kinda, he don't know what to do. He's like, Daddy, I'm confused because she asked us a question and you're not answering her question. I'm going to let her know straight out what's going on. So he told her what was up. And then while, because she's not getting any information out of me, she starts turning to him as she interviews him. And she, he says, when you're not here. Oh. <laughs> see, see, okay. Tell her the truth. But that's way more information. <laughs> when you're not here, we play this game where I go up a step and then I jump from there. And she, he said, when you walked in, I was on step number six. And then he says, my goal was to jump from step eight. I said, that is, she don't need to know all of that. So, so then she, then she, then she, he says, she says to him, do tell. And so he says, well, at first it was just a quick thing and I was, I, could, I was upright so it wasn't that fun. It was almost like stepping into his arms, but now I feel like I'm flying. And she turns to me and she says, if you drop my baby, it's going to be a thing. It's going to have a problem. I'm going to feel a way about that. And then he says to her, it made the whole moment worth it. He said, don't worry, mom, he won't drop me. And she said, how do you know that? And he said, because he never has. The God whom we serve, he has never dropped you. You may have felt like you failed, no, he's never let you go. Yeah. 
He is the constant encourager. He's the one who reigns. When you're trying to figure out who's, who's on, the, on the throne, it's him. When you're trying to figure out who's in control of the situation, it's him. It's definitely not you. It, when you're trying to figure out who's going to get you out of this, it's always, the answer is always him. The one who we're talking about is trustworthy. And because of that, you can be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. See, here's the mistake we make when we preach the gospel. We give people the false impression that the gospel is Jesus died for my sin and because he delivered me from the consequences of my sin, I get to spend eternity in heaven and I'm going to walk around on golden streets and pearly gates. That's good. Yeah, and that's not even, I won't even go so far as to say that that's false. It's just not the whole story couple things you need to know about this. When you get into glory, gold streets and pearly gates would not be first and foremost on your mind. Think about this for just a second. I, would, I genuinely believe this. The fact that the streets are made of gold puts gold into context. It can't be that important. It's pavement. You will not be in heaven overwhelmed by the architecture. You're not going to be walking around glory saying, who... This is nice. <laughs> that is not going to happen. You will be in broken awe of the risen Christ who is seated on his throne and reigning incomparably. When we preach the gospel, instead of pointing them toward the stuff they will get, we should be mindful of the one whom they will have. Because it's Christ that makes the heavenly experience. It's heavenly there. Because he is there. You could be in a junkyard with Christ. And you're like, this is nice. This is nice. That's the first mistake, mistake we make. The other mistake we make is we treat the gospel as a thing that is entirely future. But I'm telling you that God intended for the gospel to have implications on a fallen and broken world that desperately needs his kingdom and the values established by the king. And he has given it for reasons I do not understand. He has given the responsibility of bringing his kingdom to bear on the fallen world. He's given that responsibility to us. You are the ambassadors of the king. You're the representatives of the kingdom. You're the voices, the arbiters of the message. You are, listen to me, Restoration, you are a little piece of the heavenly kingdom a long way from home. In, uh, in 1997, I had the privilege of going to Israel with my pastor and 149 other people. And we, had, we were on three buses as we were touring Israel. And it was, it was an eye-opening experience for me. It made the Bible different. I, I remember the first day I had never flown before. I had never flown. I tell my children this all the time, how privileged a life they live. My children, they know the DIA like the back of their hand. They have iPads and, and backpacks uniquely packed for when they're on the plane. They have a routine. They will leave us if we're not careful because they know exactly where they're going. I was 21 years old before I set foot on an airplane. And I did that to fly to Israel. And because of that, when I got there, I was jet lagged. 
And we come out of the hotel for the first day's tour, and they want us to get on the boat that's going to cross the Sea of Galilee. Now, you've read the New Testament, so you know the stories about the Sea of Galilee. That boat was all over the place. And I'm sitting on the shore thinking, this ain't going, this is not a good idea. <laughs> I don't know what time it is. I don't know what time zone I'm in. And that boat. <laughs> so I turned to the tour guide and said, hey, I tell you what, where y'all going? Okay, I'll meet, I'll meet you there. So I go back into the hotel, I get, a, I get a cab, and I meet them on the other side. Because I wasn't going to get, I have not to this day, I, I, that was 25 years ago, I have not been on a boat ever. I, I learned that day, I don't, I don't do boats, I don't do, I don't do boats. So when I meet them, I meet them on the other side. And then the thing I heard him say repeatedly when I met them on the other side is we're going to be going into some places where you have to be careful with your pockets being picked. You have to watch so that people don't pick your pocket. He says when we go into the old city, Jerusalem, he says especially there, you have to be careful because young people have this routine where they'll start a conversation with you and while they're talking to you, trying to sell you uh, postcards and, and olive branches, someone else is coming from behind and they're picking your pocket. And he said that to us over and over again. And because of that, I decided I'm not going to carry my wallet. I, would, I left my wallet in the hotel room, but I kept my passport on me because my passport was my only means of international identification. And then we go into the old city and a little boy starts talking to me. And while he's talking to me, another little boy's talking to someone else. And I notice that while that man's talking to this little boy over here, someone else is coming from behind him and picking his pocket. And someone who was on our tour, who was from Chicago, he punched the little boy in the face. I was trying, I said, I said me, this is me. Sir, sir, that boy is picking your pocket. And before I could get it out, the man from Chicago punched him in the face. And I said, you just punched a child in the face. He said, see, in Texas, y'all talk about it. In Chicago, we be about it. I said, touche. As a matter of fact, and so I started so patting my pockets, and I said, because I'm so Texan, trying to talk about it, someone stole my passport. So I go to Moshe. Moshe is our tour guide. I said, Moshe, someone stole my passport. He said, didn't I tell you that you should? I said, Moshe, be solutions oriented. Don't blame right now. I need to get home, okay? So I, he said, we need to go to an American institution that will give you temporary travel vouchers and so on and so forth. I said, do you see the problem here? To get to this American institution, I need to be in America. To get to America, I need my passport. And he looked at me and said, no, no, there are American institutions here. And then he gave me directions to the United States Embassy. And when I walked through the gate, they flew the flag of the United States. Military men were there who wore the uniform. Everyone spoke the language. Because I still had my wallet, I had my Texas driver's license 
And while no one else cared about that Texas license, everyone wanted to know about my passport. When I walked through the gates of the embassy, they recognized my state driver's license as proper identification. Here's why. Because when I walked through that gate, I was no longer in Israel. These three, four, five, six acres, this is American sovereign territory. When I passed through the gate, I was in America. They recognized that space as a little piece of America a long way from home. You are. You are the embassy of the kingdom of God. That's not just me. That's not just me. That's the, you get that? Paul, Paul says of you in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that you are the ambassadors of the message of reconciliation. The office of the ambassador is the embassy, which makes you as a local body the embassy of the kingdom of God. When people walk through that door, they are stepping into an embodiment of the kingdom. And in here, you speak the language. You wear the uniform. You fly the flag of the kingdom. That's not all. You have been given apostolic responsibility. The word apostle is not unique to scripture. The word apostle refers to the one who goes out ahead of the king and lays claim to the territory that the king is coming to get. If you ever, if you ever seen the movie, if you ever seen the movie uh, 300, there's a scene when they come to Sparta, and they're on the horses, and one of them has the king's heads on, with the crown still on their, their, their skulls on chains, with the crown still on them, and they go in and they have a conversation with Leonidas and said, uh, "The king is coming." That's what they say to him, and Leonidas responded, annoyed, and he says, "This is Sparta," and he kicks the man down into a bottomless pit. Have you seen that movie? Okay, you know who those people were who came to tell Leonidas the king is coming. They were the apostolic contingency who went out ahead of the king, and they weren't saying to him, "The king wants this land." That's not what they were telling him. They were telling him, "This is the king's land, and he's coming to get it." That's what they were doing. You know who you are? You are the apostolic contingency. And you go out ahead of the king and you say to them, uh, I'm not here to inform you of whose land this is. It's already his. I'm just letting you know he's coming to get it. Now, there will be days when you doing that will be complicated because people don't want to hear that. What do you mean? I have the deed to this land. I own this land. I've lived on this land forever. I've lived, this is my land. And on those days, I'm telling you, you have, to re, you have to remember that you are the ambassadors. You are representatives of the embassy of the kingdom of the heavenly God and that you are to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. You are to be reminded. I'm here to remind you, Restoration, of your identity, the office that you hold, the mission that you have, and the fact that while it may be difficult sometimes, trust me, I know, while it may be difficult sometimes, it's okay for you to work your way to the finish line with a limp and let that limp be your crown, not your embarrassment. 
They told him there is no resurrection. And Paul says, listen, I'm going to tell you all a secret. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The thing that you hate, the fact that we are perishable and that we've fallen and we can, that we can uh, succumb to the frailty of the human body, the fact that that's a concern for you, he says, you don't understand. That's the route to the imperishable. The thing that you hate is a necessary means to where you are headed. He says, it's okay for it to be a route to where you are headed because we have a resurrection. And because we have a resurrection, you can be steadfast. He says, even those of us who will be alive on the day of his return, we shall be changed. You, the body you have now will, be tra will transition from its frailty to over to a glorification. I love the language. He says, it'll happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. A twinkle, a twinkle of the eye is how, it'll, how long it takes for you to move from looking that way to looking that way. So in the time it took me to do this to that, glorify. Yeah. You want to know how long it's going to take for you to be glorified? Watch this. See? Yeah, you almost won't even know what's happening. One moment you're going to be tired and your knees going to be bad. Wait. Wait, it's, it's a whole bunch of, it's a whole bunch of black people in here. One minute you're going to have high blood pressure. And before you can look over there to see that Jesus has come. Gone. It will happen in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. Here's why. Here's why. Here's why. There's no one and nothing to slow him down. There, let, me be, let, me, let, me, let me abandon the refined, polished, book reading myself. Let me be that guy for just a minute. There ain't nothing that's going to hold him up when it is time for you to experience that change. Nothing. It will happen... That's it. So resurrection occurs. Everybody comes back glorified. You still here. He makes you just like them. The fact that we can look to that day is the reason you are to be steadfast. Unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, your work is not in vain. When Derek, Redman, when Derek Redman fell on the track, he gets up and he starts hobbling to the finish line. And a middle-aged man who has an uncanny likeness to Derek Redman comes up from behind and he says something. And you could see Redman's countenance change. I was watching that. When it happened, I was watching it with my father. And when the man came up from behind, because I was young, in 1992, I was a child. Listen to me. In 1992, I was a child. And because of that, I looked at it through the lenses of a child. But I was watching it with my father. Another man, the, the middle-aged man comes up from behind, and I said, I cannot believe 
I said this aloud. I cannot believe that this person, having seen him wave off everyone else, is going to come up from behind and try to stop him. Because I was looking at it from the perspective of a child. But my father looked at him and said, no, he don't work for the Olympics. Mm -mm. That's his daddy. That's his daddy. And then you see him from about three yards behind him. You see him say something. We don't know what he said, okay? And, I, and, and, he, and when my father saw that moment occur, not knowing what the man said, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's his daddy. I said, how do you know? How do you know? You don't know what he said. He said, he said, Redmond probably don't know what he said. He probably didn't hear what he said. But you know what he did? He recognized that voice from behind, the one that was spurring him on, the one that was saying to him, ignore them, keep limping, ignore what they said to you, press on, they've all given you permission to stop, and I'm telling you, as your father, that that's not how I raised you, you press on, we know you're not going to win this race, but the agenda is not to win. See, this is not given to the swift. Your agenda is to press forward and to finish the race. I assure you that when that race was over and everyone was saying you finished a race that you had no chance of winning, you will not medal. You cannot move on to the next round. His father looked at him and said, I'm proud of you, boy, because you did, you did what I raised you to do. You lived according to how I shaped you. Listen to me, Restoration. There may be people who give you permission to pause. Well-intended people. Well-intended people. People who love you. But your father has come from behind you and saying, limp on. Get to the finish line. And when everyone is saying you did that and you didn't have to, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I love you. I'm praying for you. It is a joy for me to be here with you, and I do intend to be with you again.